Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you guys, well, evening rather, I hope you guys have had a good weekend. Sunday evening, and it is Sunday reading day, and we are reading our paranormal-themed book, like we do every every Sunday. This one is particularly Christmas-themed. It's by our good friend Sylvia Schultz, and uh, it's, 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 a, it's a killer book, literally. Killer book. Anyway, before I get started, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong, up and down the state of California. And uh, that means we can get to you no matter where you're at. We also have affiliates in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. Did I miss anybody? Oregon, Washington. Yeah, I got them all. Sometimes I forget. It's a senility. I'm tired. I've been out doing things. I've been doing my things in my house and outside off and on because it's been raining. And, you know, our, my backyard tends to flood and stuff, so I have to take care of things out there. Anyway, welcome today. And again, we're going to be reading from Sylvia Schultz's book. And uh, I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. It's, it's a great book. It's well written. And um, here we go. Now, everybody has a grown-up Christmas wish, right? Right? Mine's to get a new tablet. My tablet is so old, it, it, it's older than football. <laughs> See, I'm going to power it up and uh, get us going here. But it is old. It's a Samsung Galaxy Note 8.0. So if anybody, you know, wants to feel generous or anything and donate and get me a New tablet. I'm looking to get the Samsung 10.0. The latest Samsung. I want the one with the magic pen so I can write. Because I do use them out in the field. Anyway, I hope everybody's got their Christmas decorations up by now. I know I'm still kind of fiddling around. I'm one of these people, I do my front yard and it's never good enough. So I'm forever like dinking with it. Always dinking with it. Okay. So here we go. And let me get in there. And away we go. And this is powering up. Like I said, it takes a while. So it's an old tablet. And it just did that. Okay. It didn't do that last time, but it did this time. Hang on. All right. Here we go. Okay. So we are reading The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. The Brown Lady of Raynham Hall. Another startling ghost photograph comes from another stately English home, Random Hall in Norfolk. This one just might be the most famous ghost photograph of all time. Random Hall was once the home of Lady Dorothy Townsend, who married Viscount Charles Townsend in 1713. As in many ghost stories, all was not peaceful country life at the hall. Lady Townsend died on March 29, 1726, at the age of 40. Under mysterious circumstances, the official cause of death was smallpox. However, there were rumors that her ladyship had been pushed down the grand staircase and the fall had broken her neck. During the Christmas season of 1835, a Colonel Loftus stayed at Raynham Hall as a guest. His stay was interrupted by a nighttime visitation from a beautiful woman. The Colonel described her as a noble-looking lady who was wearing a fashionable dress of brown stain. I'm, I'm sorry, brown satin. The thing came up. I apologize. I had a flash come up about one note. Her regal looks were spoiled, though, by the terrifying fact that she had no eyes. Only empty sockets gaped where her eyes should have been. Colonel Loftus made a sketch of his midnight visitor, and a portrait was painted from the sketch and hung in the guest bedroom where the brown lady made most of her appearances. Parentheses. Decades earlier, in 1786, the future King George 
the fourth, the third, the fifth, IV, King George IV, I can't read these numbers, was a guest at the hall and stayed in that particular room. The brown lady's appearance sent the prince regent shrieking into the hallway in his nightshirt, a rather embarrassing situation for royalty. After that, he swore he would never set foot in Raynham Hall again, a promise he kept for the rest of his days. End of parentheses. The brown lady continued her haunting of the hall well into the 20th century. On September 19, 1936, two photographers from the magazine Country Life were on assignment taking pictures of the stately hall. Indra Shira was snapping the photos accompanied by art director Captain Hubert Proven. Shira and Proven were setting up a shot of the grand main staircase of the house at around 4 p.m. when Shira saw an ethereal veiled form coming slowly down the stairs. Proven didn't see a thing. He even bet Shira five quid. Hang on a second. Lost my page. Oh, God. Okay. He even bet Shira five quid that nothing weird would show up when the picture was developed. He lost the bet. The brown lady had exchanged her customary brown satin dress for a filmy white veil, but her form showed up distinctly in the picture. One of the most famous ghost photographs in the world ran for the first time in Country Life magazine. Appropriately enough, it ran, it, it ran in the year's December issue. The Ghost of Anne Boleyn. The Tower of London comes by its ghostly reputation, honestly. Built by William the Conqueror in 1078, it has stood as a symbol of the might of England for nearly a thousand years. It was originally a royal palace as well as a defensive fortress. In fact, Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress, the Tower of London, to use its proper name, is still officially a residence of the monarch. The Queen has a house on site called the Queen's House. If the ruler is male, of course, it becomes the King's House. The kings and queens of England realized quite soon after its construction that the tower was just as good at keeping people in as it was keeping people out. So it has been used as a prison since 1100, when Renef Flambard was imprisoned within the tower by Henry I. Flambard was also, by the way, the first person to escape from the tower. There have been many prisoners, royal, noble, and otherwise, who have met their ends either on the tower grounds or on nearby Tower Hill. Only seven people were executed within the tower before the 20th century. One of these unfortunates was Anne Boleyn, the second wife of Henry VIII, who was beheaded for treason in 1536. Her ghost is said to haunt the chapel of St. Peter, Peter ad Vincula, where she is buried. But she is also known to roam the grounds of the White Tower while carrying her own severed head. Anne Boleyn is arguably the most famous ghost who wanders the tower due to her ill-fated relationship with Henry VIII. Queen Anne even almost got one poor sentry court-martialed. The guard was found unconscious at his post outside the king's house one winter morning in 1864. He was accused of falling asleep while on duty and put on trial. At the hearing, though, the sentry had a really good explanation for his unconscious state. He had been standing guard when a white figure came toward him out of the early morning mist. The sentry challenged the figure three times, but the silent figure never answered. It just kept walking slowly toward him. Alarmed, the sentry lunged at the figure with his bayonet fixed, intending to run through whatever it was. But a flash of fire raced up the rifle barrel and knocked the sentry out cold. Luckily, other guards, including officers, came forward to testify at the hearing. They said they had seen the apparition, too, from a window in the bloody tower. 
After some discussion, members of the court realized that the phantasm had been seen by multiple witnesses just below the room where Anne had spent her last night alive, the night before her execution on May 19, 1536. The sentry was cleared. As for the doomed queen, she still wanders the tower with her head tucked underneath her arm. Well, as far as anyone knows. The Eileen Moore Lighthouse. Lighthouse keepers are a sturdy, devoted breed, dedicated to the demanding job of keeping their lights burning to guide sailors safely to land. In fact, there is only one case on, on record of lighthouse keepers abandoning their post. The Eileen Moore Lighthouse was built on a rocky island off the west coast of Scotland. It was a remote and forbidding place, even for a lonely lighthouse. That made the Eileen Moore light even more vital to the safety of those waters. The locals who lived on nearby islands believed that the particular island was haunted. Only fools, they said, stayed on the island overnight. But the three men who had signed on as lighthouse keepers, of course, had no choice. That was their job, to stay on the island and tend the Eileen Moore light. What happened to those men is still unknown. On the night of December 15, 1900, the brigantine Fairwind was making her way through the seas near the Eileen Moore Lighthouse. Sailors on deck saw a lifeboat in the water. At first, they thought the boat was adrift, carrying corpses from a shipwreck. The bodies in the boat were pale, dressed in rags, but they were moving. The sailors on the Fairwind could see that the men in the lifeboat were rowing and that they were heading for the lighthouse. The tiny craft with its ghastly cargo soon disappeared into the blackness. Later that same night, a storm whipped up. Sailors on the Fairwind and other ships noticed that the Eileen Moore light was out. The ship's captains were furious at the oversight. Luckily, no boats were wrecked on the stormy, in the stormy darkness. Days passed, and the lighthouse remained eerily dark. The sailors on passing ships began to be concerned. Something was definitely wrong. There were three men on the island. If one of them, or even two, had been taken ill, there still should have been a man left to restart the light. At the very least, they should have been able to send some sort of, sort of distress signal to shore. But the island stayed stubbornly shrouded in darkness. A supply ship finally made it out to the island to investigate. On, on the day after Christmas, to investigate, sorry about that, to investigate the day after Christmas, they found no sign of any of the three men and absolutely no clues as to where they'd gone. The searchers found two strange things worth noting. The foul weather gear among the lighthouse supplies, the oilskin coats and heavy rubber boots, was all gone. The investigators also found shreds of seaweed scattered around. Not so unusual on an island, except that it was kind of an unknown in that area. The searchers did find the lighthouse logbook. That provided no clues, but only deepened the mystery. The head keeper, Thomas Marshall, wrote that a vicious storm had pummeled the lighthouse for three days, beginning December 12th. The log noted that the men spent most of those three days in a state of near panic, praying for their lives and crying, strange behavior for stalwart lighthouse tenders. Had the desolation of their post made all three of the men snap, all at the same time? The final entry in the log was dated December 15th. Marshall wrote only this, Storm is ended, sea calm, God is, all, God is over all. But here's the creepy part, besides the fact that the men simply vanished. On the three days mentioned in the log, December 12th through December 15th, there was no storm. As a matter of fact, on the island of Lewis, just 20 miles away, 
The weather for those three days had been unusually calm. A storm had blown in the area on the night of December 15th, the day Marshall wrote that the seas were finally calm. The official inquiry in, into the desertion of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse was unable to reach any conclusion as to the fate of Thomas Marshall and his two companions. But the sailors on board the Fairwind couldn't put the ghastly sight of the lifeboat filled with living corpses out of their minds, the boat that was being rowed steadily towards the lighthouse by dead men. There was a local legend that said sometimes the ghosts of shipwrecked sailors came ashore to claim the living. The Mystery of the Mary Celeste On November 7, 1872, the merchant brigantine Mary Celeste left the port of New York. She was bound for Genoa, Italy, with a cargo of alcohol, meant to be added to wine to fortify it. Benjamin Spooner Briggs was her captain, in charge of a crew of seven. Also on board were Captain Briggs' wife, Sarah, and their daughter, Sophia Matilda, just two years old. On December 4th, the crew of the De Gracia saw the Mary Celeste drifting in the Atlantic, 400 miles east of the Azores. She was full of cargo and carried six months' worth of food and water but the ship's cat was the only living creature on board. Captain Briggs, his family, and the seven crew members were nowhere to be found. They were never heard from again. The Palantine Light The ghostly ship, known as the Palantine, has appeared for nearly 300 years in the waters off the coast of Rhode Island. The eerie apparition has gained fame as the Palantine Light, and it usually manifests as a crimson glow on the horizon. The ship was probably a British vessel called the Princess Augusta. It left Rotterdam, Holland in, eight, in, in 1738, carrying 240 passengers. Many of them were immigrants from the Palatine region of Germany, headed for a new life in Philadelphia. A few weeks into the voyage, voyage I'm sorry, <laughs> a few weeks into the voyage, the supplies of the fresh water somehow got contaminated, causing an outbreak of fever and diarrhea on board. Captain George Long died, as did seven crew members, and more than half of the passengers. First mate Andrew Brooke took charge of the ship, and the immigrants' suffering began in earnest. The ship floundered around the Atlantic for an incredible three months after the contaminated water debacle. Supplies of food and fresh water ran dangerously low. Brooke, now in charge, decided he could make a few bucks on the side by charging the passengers for the measly amount of food they were given. The ship ran into storm after storm in the winter months, which, it pushed even, which pushed it even farther north. During Christmas week, the ship was caught in a vicious snowstorm somewhere in the Devil's Triangle, the region of Rhode Island coast between Montauk Point, Block Island, and the mainland. The remaining crew just snapped. They plundered what they could from the ship, launched the ship's longboats, and abandoned the immigrants to their fate. The Princess Augusta, adrift without experienced sailors to man the tiller, tossed in the freezing waves until she beached herself on a rocky on the rocky shore of Sandy Point, Sandy Point on Block Island on December 27th. Twenty more passengers died when the ship ran aground. The tragic event was immortalized in John Grief Whittier's poem, The Palantine, written in 1867. In the poem, the Block Islanders who came down to the shore to investigate the wrecked ship are portrayed as heartless looters, no better than the crew who'd, who'd abandoned the ship in the first place. Finding nothing of value aboard the stricken ship, in the poem, the islanders simply set the ship on fire and push it back into the sea, passengers and all. Fortunately, this is not what actually happened. The story that Block Islanders preferred to tell is that they helped the 17 people left 
alive on the battered ship. The islanders took the immigrants to Simon Ray's farm, but the shipwreck and the, pri and the privation of the previous weeks had taken their toll. Some of the immigrants regained their health, but most of them were beyond saving. As for the ship itself, it wasn't worth repairing. As it was still sitting wrecked on the rocky shore, the islanders feared it would become a hazard to navigation, so they set fire to it. A freak wind lifted the burning ship on, onto the swell of a wave, and it drifted back out to sea. The ship would claim one more victim as it left the shore forever, though. One woman was still below decks when the ship was fired. Half crazed from the terror of the voyage, she refused to leave the burning deck. The islanders watched in horror as the mad woman was burned alive, her shrieks echoing into the night. The ship is still seen even today. It manifests between Christmas and New Year's Eve, usually on the anniversary of the fire. As reporter Edwin C. Hill wrote in 1934, there are people living on Block Island who will tell you, with their hand on the book, that they have gazed seaward in the blackness of night, startled by a bright radiance at sea, and have watched with straining eyes while the Palantine, blazing from trunk to keelson, swept along the horizon. For many years, the abandoned woman's screams were said to accompany that queer crimson light on the darkening horizon, the light of the Palantine, forever burning, yet never consumed. Merry Christmas from the Bell Witch. It's been 200 years since the Bell family of Tennessee was tormented by a mysterious entity known only as the Bell Witch. But the events that unfolded between the years of 1817 and 1821 have remained evergreen in American ghost lore. And they are some of the most amazing tales in Tennessee history. John Bell, a prosperous cotton farmer, was born in North Carolina in 1750. He, his wife Lucy, and their nine children moved to Robinson County, Tennessee in 1804. Bell purchased many acres of land along the Red River and set about improving it even more. He cleared fields, planted orchards, and built a home for his large family. He even built a one-room schoolhouse where his children and his neighbor's children could get, in it, could get an education. This being Tennessee in the early 19th century, John Bell's cotton plantation was worked by slaves. But Bell and his family were very devout, and Bell himself seemed to let his religious beliefs dictate his treatment of his slaves. He doesn't seem to have been a particularly harsh master. John Bell knelt to lead his family in prayer three times a day, and he opened his house as a gathering place for prayer meetings, Bible studies led by Lucy Bell, and other worship services. John Bell was socially and politically active as well. He dressed the part of a wealthy, influential businessman and landowner. When he went to town on business, he made an imposing figure in his tailored coat with silver buttons and his fashionable beaver hat. Bell made many speeches in support of political candidates whose values aligned with his, and he was known for personal integrity and wasn't afraid to speak up for his beliefs. John Bell was an understanding citizen, a devout Christian, the benevolent head of a large family, a careful steward of his land and property, and a prosperous businessman. That's what made the events to come even more startling. One day in 1817, Bell was inspecting a cornfield where he saw a bizarre-looking animal crouched in the middle of a row of corn. The creature had the body of a dog, but the head of a rabbit. Startled and horrified by the, by the anomaly, Bell shot at it several times. He didn't hit it, but the strange animal vanished. After this encounter, odd things started to happen in the Bell home. At first, the activity was very subtle. Family members would hear tapping on the windows at night, or rats gnawing on the bedposts, or a sound like an animal scratching at the doors. 
nothing could ever be found to account for the noises. Then the noises got violent. The bell children would be woken from sleep by the sound of vicious dogfights in their rooms. Other times, they would hear the clank of heavy chains being dragged across the floor or the racket of furniture being thrown around the room. The weird noises continued for a year. Then, suddenly, things got much worse. The poltergeist activity escalated from noise to physical attacks on the family. The entity started with pulling bedclothes off of sleeping children. An overnight guest was woken by the covers sliding off of him. With a shout, he grabbed the covers, which were bunched up to look like a human form. He felt something solid under his hands and yelled in triumph, I have the ghost. The fire in the hearth was still burning, and the man jumped out of bed, still holding the bunched sheets in his fisted hands. He intended to throw the ghost, sheets and all, into the fire and get rid of the tormenting entity forever. But before he got to the fireplace, the room suddenly filled with an overpowering stench. The smell was bad enough that the man started to retch. Instinctively, he dropped the wadded sheets and ran out of the room for some fresh air. When he could breathe without heaving, he came back into the room. The nauseating stink was gone, but so was the ghost. Another time, John Bell's son Richard was rudely jerked from a sound sleep by something pulling his hair hard. It felt like the top of his scalp was tearing right off. He screamed in agony, and John and Lucy came running into the bedroom. Then an equally ear-splitting shriek came from another bedroom. Betsy, Rich Bet Betsy, Richard's sister, was being attacked in the exact same way. To add to the physical attacks, the entity had upped its repertoire of sounds, replacing the animal scratchings with gnawings and gnawings I'm sorry, replacing the animal scratchings and gnawings were a variety of noises that sounded almost human. Lips smacking, throat gulping, and an exquisitely horrifying choking gurgle that sounded like someone being slowly strangled. A family friend, James Johnson, wanted very much to help the Bells with their troubles. He started talking to the ghost, trying to get it to answer questions to explain its presence in the Bell home. At first, the only response he got was a faint whistling noise. Over the next few days, the air became filled with a feeble whispering that grew in volume until unmistakably there was a voice. By now, it was clear that Betsy Bell was increasingly the focus of the entity's attention. The haunting was a great source of stress for her, even more so because at one point, visitors to the home all but accused her of faking the voices using ventriloquism. John and Lucy called in the doctor to debunk this. The phantom voice spoke and the doctor laid his hand on Betsy's throat. He swore he felt no vibrations from her vocal cords. This convinced him that Betsy was completely innocent of trickery or games. The Bell family and James Johnson peppered the ghost with questions, but the entity refused to give a straight answer. One day it claimed to be a Native American whose bones had been disturbed. Another day it said, I am a spirit who was once very happy, but have been disturbed and now am, now am unhappy. That did nothing to narrow things down. The most specific answer the entity gave about its identity was that it was Kate Batt, a local woman accused of being a witch. But it wasn't Kate's ghost. Kate Batt was very much alive at the time, although she'd been driven out of the area by an angry mob some time before. The voice became many voices, sometimes stumbling over each other in their clamor to be heard. The voices called themselves the family of Kate Batt, which the Bell family assumed meant that the witch had summoned a host of spirits in a dark ritual. With the arrival of multiple voices came multiple personalities, although the family still referred to the entity as the witch. 
Not all of these personalities were malevolent. The witch had his favorites. On one occasion, the entity saved life of one of the bell children. One of the boys was crawling through a cave near the house. He was navigating a narrow passage when he got stuck in some quicksand. The cave suddenly glowed with an unearthly light, and a disembodied voice shouted, I'll get you out. Something grabbed the boy's legs. He said, he said later, it just felt like strong hands, and pulled him to safety. It was Lucy Bell, John's wife, who was the witch's particular favorite. The ghost sat in on the Bible study groups Lucy led in the Bell home. When the group decided to take a break, fruit would materialize out of thin air, falling into the laps of the stunned guests. Another time, Lucy was very ill and lay sick in bed. The witch cooed, Luce, poor Luce, how do you feel now? Then in a show of, uh, then in a show, uh, then in a show of affection, it gently showered Lucy's lap with hazelnuts. When Lucy pointed out that the nuts were still in their shells and she had no way of cracking them, the entity shelled the nuts for her. But other members of the family were victimized by the witch. It seemed to focus much on its much of its malevolence on, the, on Betsy Bell. It would pull her hair or slap her face. The attacks would come without warning, and Betsy soon became shivering, a shivering nervous wreck. Sixteen-year-old Betsy was engaged to be married, and the witch would have none of it. When Betsy's fiancé, Joshua Gardner, came to court her, the entity would fill the air with crude talk about the couple embarrassing poor Betsy to tears. Sometimes the entity took a gentler tactic. When Betsy lay in bed at night, she would often hear the phantom voice pleading, Please, Betsy Bell, don't have Joshua Gardner. Eventually, Betsy just gave up and broke off the engagement. The witch saved its most savage ire for John Bell. Early in the haunting, John had been plagued with a weird stiffness in his mouth. He said it felt like someone had jammed a stick in his mouth and was turning it sideways, forcing his jaws apart. Whatever was going on inside John's mouth caused his tongue to swell. He couldn't speak or eat for days at a time. His face would spasm and twitch embarrassingly. Lack of proper nutrition and the sheer strangeness of his suffering took its toll, and John began to fade. By December 1820, he was seriously ill. He was in bed for a week, suffering almost continual torment from the witch. After several days, John seemed to rally a bit, and he felt well enough to go outside for a walk in his garden with his son Richard, but the pair didn't get far. Moments after they stepped outside the house, John's head rocked back with the force of a blow to his face. Stunned, he sat down on a log to catch his breath. His face started convulsing, as if someone was squishing his face and pinching his cheeks without mercy. Then, to add insult to injury, John's shoes flew off. Richard scrambled to grab them and knelt at his father's feet to slip them back on. But every time Richard put the shoes back on, they would yank themselves off and go flying again. The ghost cackled with delighted malice. The old man sat in his garden with tears of frustration rolling down his face, crying like a kid being tormented by a schoolyard bully. On the morning of December 20th, John Bell fell into a coma. Thinking to rouse his father, John Jr. went to the cabinet to fetch the medicine the family doctor had prescribed. It was gone. In his place in the cupboard shelf was a strange flask, about one-third full of a dark, evil-looking syrup. In a panic, John Jr. sent the servant sent, sent the servant to fetch the doctor. The voice of the witch rose in a cackle, filling the room with the sound of its triumph. I put it there and gave old Jack a big dose of it last night while he was fast asleep. I guess that fixed him, the witch bragged. The doctor arrived and inspected the suspicious-looking liquid. 
he decided to test it on the family cat. The cat licked a little bit off a spoon, then it leaped into the air, whirled around three times, and dropped to the floor, stone dead. Instead of handing the mysterious flask over to the sheriff, as he should have done, the doctor poured the rest of the flask dark contents onto the fire, where it could do no more harm. By doing so, though, he destroyed any evidence that could have helped identify Bell's murderer had Bell been poisoned by someone very much of this world. But the harm was already done. The next morning, John Bell succumbed to the mysterious poison and slipped into death. The witch didn't even let the family hold John's funeral in peace. It interrupted the service with, with shrieks of glee and a crude drinking song. Christmas in the Bell house was a somber affair that year, but the witch was ecstatic. On Christmas Day, the family was rudely awakened by the raucous voice of the witch shouting carols at high volume and cackling maniacally. The family hadn't planned any celebration, but they did decide to have a low-key exchange of presents. When they came downstairs, though, they found shredded wrapping paper all over the floor, all over the room. The presents were destroyed. Betsy Bell lived into her 80s. To the end of her life, she swore that the most horrendous episode of her life was the haunting, and that she would always remember 1820 as the year Satan stole my father in Christmas and Jesus wept with us. The Murder of Thelma Todd Quote, I've known and respected your husband for many years, and what's good enough for him is good enough for me. End quote, Groucho Marx, Monkey Business. Hollywood. Bright lights, movie stars, fame, so close you can taste it. The glamour of the movie business has lured many eager souls to California. Some hopefuls become stars, some stars become legends. And some stars burn brightly and then explode, victims of their own incandescence. Thelma Todd was born July 29, 1906 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. She was a bright little girl, a good student, who had dreams of becoming a school teacher. After graduating high school in 1923, she enrolled at the Lowell Lowell Normal School to work towards a teaching degree. But life and Thelma's mother had other plans. Seeing Thelma's fresh blonde beauty, Mrs. Todd encouraged her daughter to start entering beauty contests. Thelma did well in local pageants and even won Miss Massachusetts in 1925. The prestigious win sent her on on to the Miss America pageant. She didn't win but there, was t- there were talent scouts in the audience who were looking for fresh new faces for the young film industry. Thelma was invited to seek her fortune in Hollywood, which was just what Mrs. Todd had wanted all along. Thelma proved to be a natural on the screen. The 1920s were a heady time for the film industry. Hollywood was making the transition from silent movies to talkies. Some actors and actresses just couldn't make the leap, mostly because their voices didn't match their appearance. Thelma started her career in silent movies and played numerous supporting roles that showcased her beauty but gave her little chance to act. That changed with the coming of sound to movies. Thelma blossomed in the talkies. Thelma's voice, a bright clear soprano with just a trace of northeastern lilt, matched her image beautifully. She had enough of a New England accent to sound aristocratic without coming off as snobby. Acting Acting roles poured in for Thelma. In the Chicago tour, in the Chicago Tribune article written in 1991, I think it's 1891. <clears throat> okay, it says 1991. Okay, maybe she was described as a cross between Goldie Hawn. Okay, I'm sorry, that's my fault. 
the Chicago Tribune article written in 1991, she was described as a cross between Goldie Hawn and Farrah Fawcett, only more popular. She played all kinds of roles, including parts in dramas and gothic horror films. But it was a comedic actress that Thelma really shone. She made 115 pictures between 1926 and 1935. Producer Hal Roach paired her with Laurel and Hardy and led her to other studios where she made films with Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers, including Horse Feathers and Monkey Business. Stan Laurel was a particular friend of Thelma's, and he often requested that she be cast as a leading lady in his films. Thelma picked up a couple of nicknames in the business. She was known as Hot Toddy or the Ice Cream Blonde. But Thelma's life was an old ice cream and Billy laughs. She married Pat DeSico, Pat DeSico, DeSico, in 1932 and divorced him in 34. Even before that, in 1931, she had started an affair with director Roman West. Soon, she and West were living together, sharing a house with West's ex-wife. The phrase, it's complicated, is particularly apt here. And that wasn't the worst of it. When Thelma started working with Hal Roach, the producer made her sign a contract that included something he laughingly called the Potato Clause. But it was no laughing matter. The Potato Clause said that if Thelma gained over five pounds, she'd be fired. This had the potential to seriously damage Thelma's career. Sucked into the lavish Hollywood lifestyle, Thelma went to a lot of parties and did a lot of drinking, filling up on empty calories. Her mother worried that Thelma would jeopardize her meal ticket. Helpfully, her mother, I'm sorry, worried that Thelma would jeopardize her meal ticket, helpfully introduced her daughter to diet pills. With her movie earnings, Thelma bought a restaurant in Los Angeles' neighborhood of Pacific Palisades. Tourists, as well as Hollywood royalty, flocked to the popular restaurant called Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe. The second floor of the building was a nightclub called, jo called Joyous. And the third floor, well, the third floor was an issue. The riches of Los Angeles had attracted the attention of the mafia. The mobster, Lucky Luciano, had dreams of setting up an empire of prostitution, gambling, and extortion in L.A. He introduced himself to Thelma and started to make himself indispensable to the young actress. He got her hooked on potent amphetamines that kept the weight off better than her prescription diet pills. Thelma was intrigued by the air of, by the air of rackish danger Lucky Luciano represented. Mobsters were rich with their own brand of glamour. But even though she herself was a movie star, there was still a part of Thelma that tried to keep her New England school teacher innocence. Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe, <clears throat> sorry, and her enjoyers, <clears throat> enjoyers were intensely important to the young star. The restaurant and club were the first things Thelma owned that were really truly hers, and they were wildly successful. Visiting Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe in the 30s was like dining at Spago's today. It was a place to see and be seen. Thelma was protective of her investments. So when Lucky Luciano approached Thelma with a proposition, he wanted to rent the third floor of her building above Hoyas, or Joyas, I say Hoyas because I'm, I'm my Spanish blood, so, and turn it into a gambling parlor. Thelma was appalled. She didn't care that Luciano was, was one of the names in, in gang, one of the biggest names in gangland history. She channeled the gutsy wisecracking heroine she played on the silver screen, and she told Lucky Luciano to go get stuffed. Another man with compelling interest in Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe was Thelma's boyfriend, Roland West. West wanted Thelma at the restaurant, drawing customers in with her star power more than she wanted to be there. West called Thelma his money magnet, with rough affection. He told her, you're my money maker. If you're not there, I'm not making money. 
on the night of December 14th, Thelma went to a gala in Hollywood, uh, to a gala Hollywood party thrown by her friend Stanley Lupino and his daughter, actress Ida Lupino. Unfortunately, one of the other guests at the party was Pat Patacito, Pat Patacico, Thelma's ex-husband. When he heard Thelma was going to be there, he apparently requested to be seated next to her at dinner. This, obviously, was not someone Thelma wanted to party with. Thelma threw back a few drinks, and she and, De and, she and DeSico argued. Thelma was also in the doghouse with her boyfriend, Roland West. The air owner, Sid Grauman, called West as, as the evening wound down, saying that Thelma was headed home and was a bit under the influence. Roman tactfully suggested that perhaps West might want to pour Thelma into bed when she got home. But Thelma never made it home. Sometime in the wee hours of Monday morning, December 16, 1935, Thelma Todd died in the garage of West's house. She was found by her maid, Mae Whitehead, slumped in the front seat of her Lincoln Phaeton. The official cause of Thelma's death was carbon monoxide poisoning, resulting from sitting in an enclosed garage with the car's engine running. But this doesn't explain the injuries. Thelma suffered immediately of the injuries. This doesn't explain, I'm sorry, this doesn't, but this doesn't explain the injuries. Thelma suffered immediately before her death. A split lip, a broken nose, several broken ribs, and bruises. Besides that, she'd been hit in the mouth hard enough to dislodge one of her dental fillings. She'd made an enemy, but who? Was it Roland West? Who had locked her out of the apartment that chilly December night? Was it Pat DeSico? Who had ties with the mob? Could it have been Lucky Luciano? According to one story, when Luciano brought up the idea of putting in a gambling parlor on the third floor of Thelma's building, Thelma's building over the dinner one night, over dinner one night, Thelma snarled at him over my dead body. If the story is to be believed, Luciano melodra melodramatically replied, "That can be arranged." Whether Thelma's death was accident, suicide, or murder, it shocked the acting world. The sassy, beloved comedian, not yet thirty years old was gone. On the morning Thelma's body was found, the day's mail de delivery brought her Christmas card to stand, in Ruth to stand in Ruth Laurel's home. The trunk of Thelma's car was full of Christmas presents for her friends and family. On December 23, 1935, Thelma Todd was laid to rest at Forest Lawn Cemetery. Crowds gathered to pay their respects to the actress who lay in a casket covered with mounds of yellow roses. Thelma was gone, but her spirit still wanders the hills of Hollywood. Her ghost has been seen near the restaurant that bore her name. Even in death, she's still glamorous, still dressed in the evening gown, mink coat, and jewels she wore to her last party. Sometimes she appears on the staircase of the building where she and Roland West lived, and in the garage where she was found dead, witnesses have heard a car running and have smelled the sharp tang of gasoline. The garage hasn't been used to store cars in decades. The Todd House. The oldest private home in Victoria, British Columbia, is a small bungalow on Heron Street. The wooden frame house was built in 1851 by John Todd, head trader for the Hudson Bay Company. John Todd was quite the frontier character. He immigrated from Scotland in 1813 to seek his fortune in New Caledonia, as that part of British Columbia was then known. He certainly made the most of freedom, most of the freedom the Canadian frontier offered. At one point, he ran afoul of the government of the Hudson Bay Company and was banished to the remote outpost of Fort, Fort, of Fort McLeod. He spent nine years there and used the time to become fluent in several Native American dialects. One, one antidote 
particularly in particular reveals Todd's rough and tumble take no crap attitude. In 1847, he was chief trader at Fort Kamloops when Chief Nicola and his men showed up to attack the fort. Todd showed the chief a king of gunpowder and threatened to blow himself in the fort sky high if the camp that the Kamloop tribe didn't leave the fort in peace. The bluff worked, and Chief Nicola backed down. John Todd was, was married at least seven times. Four of those marriages were to Native women. Apparently, his business, Acumen, was not the only asset that was improved by his fluency in Native dialects. Todd's multiple marriages produced ten children. Wanting to keep his growing family safe, Todd made his small home into a fortress. The home was built with defense in mind. The thick wooden front door still graces the house, complete with a bullet hole said to be from an attack by rival traders from Cadborough Bay. There's also a tunnel that runs from the cellar to a spot some ways from the house, a bolt hole the family could use to escape in the event of an attack. Todd's colorful life ended in 1882, and the house was passed down to his heirs. Colonel and Mrs. T.C. Evans bought the house in 1944. What they didn't know was that their new home had already become the focus of supernatural attention. Mrs. E.C. Turner lived in the Todd house with her daughter from 1929 to 1944. She spoke of experiencing eerie feelings in a large upstairs bedroom. Neither she nor her daughter would sleep in that room. The cat, too, would growl and arch her back when she passed the room, as if she could see something Mrs. Turner couldn't. Colonel and Mrs. Evans didn't believe in ghosts. Nonetheless, he couldn't deny that the house was extremely odd. The cellar door refused to stay closed, even when it was locked. Hats from the hat stand would often be found tossed around the hallway, and Mrs. Evans' antique rocker would often rock by itself in the living room. The colonel did some research on the history of the house. The rumor he'd heard was that one of John Todd's native wives had gone insane and was kept changed in an upstairs bedroom. Chained. Colonel and Mrs. Evans regularly opened their home to servicemen <clears throat> during World War II. One night, two airmen spent the night, at the, Todd house, spent the night at the Todd house. The colonel and his wife, despite their skepticism, couldn't deny that the large bedroom on the upper floor gave them the creeps. So they turned it into a guest room and settled the two aviators in for the night. The next morning, Mrs. Evans found the room empty. The two men came back later that day in the daylight to explain their hurried departure. One man was quoted in an interview printed in the Vancouver Sun. We'd been asleep for several hours when I suddenly awoke. I can't really describe what woke me, although it sounded like the rattling of chains. Over in the corner stood an Indian woman, her hands held out to me in such a manner that she seemed to be pleading with me to help her. On her arms and legs were what looked like fetters. She kept looking at me, her hands outstretched and saying something that I couldn't quite catch. As suddenly as she appeared, she was gone. I'll never forget the sight. The spirits of the Todd house seem to be the most active during the holiday season. One morning, the Evanses awoke to find that Christmas decorations had all been stripped from the walls of the tree and that the Christmas cards had been swept from the mantle. Everything was all in a pile in the middle of the living room floor. The ghost even showed up for a New Year's party. Mrs. Evans had hung a porcelain cookie jar from a hook near the fireplace. During the party, the cookie jar started to swing back and forth, in full view of the astonished guests. The jar swung itself for nearly, an, uh, for nearly half an hour as the guests watched in amazement. After the New Year's Eve party, the Todd house became famous as a haunted location. The swinging cookie jar was just 
was such a sensation that word about the hauntings in the house got out. Reporters showed up to investigate, and curiosity seekers showed up just to gawk. In early 1947, Colonel Evans began work on installing a new oil furnace. Workmen were digging a hole next to the front porch for an, for an oil storage tank. About seven feet down, they uncovered a human skeleton. The workmen refused to dig any farther, so Colonel Evans excavated the bones himself. The skull was in good shape, but the bones had largely decomposed, and the colonel figured that the body had been covered with quicklime at the time it was buried. A forensic specialist determined that the bones were those of a female, of either Asian or Native American descent, and that the woman had been buried over 50 years earlier, making her date of death somewhere, between, somewhere before 1897. Somewhere be before 1897, John Todd died in 1882. Strangely enough, once the bones had been unearthed, the hauntings of the house stopped. Professor Gladstone and the Murderer The small town of Beachy, Saskatchewan, didn't see much excitement during the year, but the evening of December 10, 1932, was a special occasion. That night, people were braving the wintry weather and flocking to the small movie theater in town. They weren't coming to see Davis or Gary Cooper or, oh, they weren't coming to see Davis. I'm sorry. They, <clears throat> my bad. <clears throat> okay, they weren't coming to see B Betty Davis or Gary Cooper or the antics of the Marx Brothers or the snide sarcasm of W.C. Fields. They were there to see a live performance by Professor Gladstone Mentalist, a real live mind reader, or so he claimed. The house lights dimmed and the audience settled in for an evening of exciting entertainment. They had no idea how much drama would shortly come from that small stage. Professor Gladstone was tall, with a distinguished manner well-befitting a mind reader and showman. He put on a memorable performance as he worked the show for nearly an hour, astounding the audience with his uncanny powers of mentalism. Unbeknownst to the audience, the show was about to get a lot more interesting. Gladstone stopped his dramatic pacing around the stage and went, eerily still for a few moments. The audience began to murmur their uncertainty. What was wrong? Then Gladstone snapped to attention and stared out over the audience. He locked eyes with a local rancher named Bill Taylor. Quote, at this moment, you are thinking of your friend Scotty McLaughlin, Gladstone, Gladstone intoned. As Taylor blinked in astonishment, the mind reader added, Scotty McLaughlin was the victim of a foul brutal murder. A ripple of shock rustled through the theater. Three years before, McLaughlin had, had farmed in the area with a partner, John Schumacher. He'd, he'd had plans to sell his share of the farm to Schumacher and move to British Columbia. He had intended to take the night train out of town on January 16, 1930. His friends had showed up at the station to see him off and wish him luck, but McLaughlin had never arrived to catch his train. The police had been notified, but the investigation had gone cold. Professor Gladstone wasn't finished, making electrifying announcements. He pointed to another man in the audience and announced, he will find the body, and I myself will be with him when he does. It was another bombshell. The man Gladstone had pointed to was Constable Carey, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer for the town. Constable Carey was, himself, shocked at Gladstone's revelations. The next morning he called RCMP headquarters in Saskatoon. He told Corporal Jack Woods, about the previous night's astounding scene at the theater. 
Woods did a quick background check on Professor Gladstone and decided to reopen the case. Whether one believed in mind-reading powers or not, Gladstone's act had reminded the community that one of their citizens had been missing for nearly three years. If nothing else, the police would do well to take advantage of the renewed interest in the situation. When Corporal Woods arrived, Constable Carey contacted Professor Gladstone, and the three men began to, to, to canvass the town of Beachy and the outlying farming community. They spent the entire day talking to people, mostly getting a rehash of the same dead-end information that Carey had heard in January of 1930. But they caught a break in the case late that afternoon. A farmer who was impressed by Gladstone's talents admitted before McLaughlin had gone missing John Schumacher had come to see him in a towering rage. The farmer had no idea why Schumacher was so worked up, but he did say that Schumacher had threatened to kill the damn Scotsman. This new evidence was enough to send the policeman with, a gla with Gladstone in tow out to Schumacher's farm that same night. As the tires of the car crunched on Schumacher's driveway, Gladstone insisted that McLaughlin's body was somewhere on the property. John Schumacher, however, stuck to the story he told when McLaughlin had gone missing. He kept, his, he kept the story simple. Scotty had wanted to leave for British Columbia, so he, Schumacher, had paid Scotty a few hundred dollars for his share of the land. He had never seen Scotty again and had no idea where he was now. The Mounties found Schumacher's story a little too pat and started asking more questions. Schumacher, sensing their suspicions, clammed up. Just as the police were about to give up in frustration, Professor Gladstone spoke. He painted a sordid picture of the crime. Scotty had indeed come to Schumacher seeking payment for his share of the farm, but Schumacher had started a fight. The two men had wandered, still arguing, close to the barn. The argument had turned violent. A blow fell, and another, and another. Schumacher had buried McLaughlin's body near the barn. John Schumacher's stubborn silence said more than a desperate denial ever could. The next morning, the police officers and Gladstone returned, and they brought a group of other men from the community. The men were all carrying picks and shovels. The group looked to Professor Gladstone for instructions. The mind reader concentrated fiercely for a few moments. Then he pointed to a frozen pile of manure. Dig there. You'll find him. Two hours later, the men's hands were beginning to go numb with the cold. John Schumacher stood, stood by, nearby, still saying nothing. The group was still working, but they weren't digging with the same frenzy as when they'd started. Could the professor have been wrong this whole time? Suddenly, a shovel had scraped against not hard frozen dirt, but something more yielding, a wooden sock. A woolen sock. There was something in the ground. Soon the diggers had unearthed an entire skeleton. Shreds of rotting cloth lay limply on the bones. The men fell silent. That scarf, it's, it's Scotty's, one man said in a sick, strangled voice. The skull, when pried from the frozen grave and brushed off, showed three distinct fractures. John Schumacher broke down and admitted to the murder. He was convicted and sentenced, and justice was finally served. The case brought Professor Gladstone the kind of publicity money the kind of publicity money just can't buy. His career flourished, and he continued to perform for many years. As good as he was, though, he never had another show as dramatic as the one he played in Beachy, Saskatchewan, on December 10, 1932. The Mackey Haunting Constant readers and other fans of the paranormal may remember the case of the two English ladies 
excuse me, who visited Versailles in 1904 and had the eerie experience of seeming to travel back in time to the era of the French Revolution. A Mr. William Mackey had a similar experience in Ireland around 1852. Mackey was out hunting waterfall with his dog sometime towards the beginning of December. It was a bitterly cold night, and the moon had already set. The young man had enjoyed his long day of sport and was just about to head for home when he heard the unfamiliar bark of a strange dog. Then he heard a musket shot. Then he heard a barrage of shots, which, could, which he could identify as attack and defense. Mackey, although he couldn't see the shooters, still didn't think the gunshots were anything of a paranormal nature. Then he noticed that his courageous hunting dog was crouching in a terrified huddle, trying to crawl between Mackey's feet for protection. Faced with his dog's uncharacteristic behavior, Mackey started to wonder what exactly was going on around him in the darkness of the marshes. Suddenly, a few hundred yards away from him, he saw a glow like a house fire. Mackey knew the marshes well, and he knew that not only was there a house in that direction, there wasn't really anything that combustible, and yet pieces of burning roof thatch and timber sparks were falling into the water at his feet with, with tiny hisses as they extinguished themselves. And still the gunshots continued. They seemed to lessen a bit as the glow of the fire rose. Then the clear note of a bugle sounded, piercing the cold night air. The gunfire stopped, and Mackey heard the clop and jingle of a cavalry squad trotting towards the scene of the fire. Mackey stood still for what seemed like an eternity. Finally, the sound of horses going at a walk as they left the scene faded into the distance. The phantom glow of the fire had appeared along the path Mackey normally would have taken to get home, but he, got, he was so terrified that he skirted that area of the marsh and took a longer way home. At breakfast the next morning, the young Mackey caught Mary Hill from his father for staying out so late. Mackey thought quickly and came up with a plausible excuse, or so he thought. He explained that while out hunting, he had fallen asleep for a while. He spun the weirdness he'd seen and heard the barking dog, the gunshots, first the one, and then the barrage of gunfire, the glow of the fire, the bits of burning thatch, and chunks of glowing timber, the horses riding up, then riding away into a dream. Mackey's father gave a knowing snort when his son had finished spinning the white lie. If that's the case, boyo, you were dreaming with your eyes open. The father went on to explain that young Mackey was not the only person ever to witness the strange series of events. Then his father told his son a family story that had taken place over 150 years before. Near the end of the 17th century, a widow named Sally, Ma Sally, Sally Mackey lived with her three sons on the outer edge of the small Mackey settlement. The sons had somehow, somehow run afoul of the authorities, and all three were accused of high treason. A warrant was issued for their arrest and delivered to the officer in command of the infantry regiment stationed in the nearby town of Lifford. High treason was a serious defense, so a company of troops was gathered immediately and set off at 11 p.m. There was a simple narrow bridle path that led from the main road to the Mackey's cottage so the military could only approach in single file. The company arrived at the cottage at midnight and made their way up the narrow path. So quietly did the troops move that the first inkling Sally and her sons had that something was amiss was that their collie dog started barking. There was a single gunshot and a yelp, this silence. Someone had shot their dog. Sally and her sons raced to the windows. In one glance, they took in the sight of the dead guard dog and the soldiers fanning out to encircle the cottage. Sally grabbed a musket from the stack 
it kept handy and started to shoot, handing the guns off to her sons to reload when she ran dry. Several soldiers dropped to the ground, either wounded or killed. Sally McKay was a good shot. No one ever found out if the fire that destroyed the cottage started by accident or with deliberately set. As the fire grew, licking at the timber walls and devouring that thatched roof, Sally stopped shooting, overcome by the smoke and flames. She heaved the door open, gasping for fresh air, then collapsed, still inside the burning cottage. The officer in command rushed in, braving smoke and falling, burning braving smoke and falling, burning timbers, and scooped Sally up. He carried her a safe distance from the inferno. Sally was wounded and burned. All three of her sons were dead, but the soldiers sent to arrest them had gotten the worst of the fight. Many of them were killed and wounded. The sentries in Lifford heard the exchange of gunfire. They sent out a cavalry troop to see what was going on out in the marshes. The troop got there just in time to see the infantry officer drag Sally from the burning cottage. The cavalry milled around for a while then left as the action was over. Sally McKay was not fatally wounded in the gunfight or the fire. Although she'd lost all three of her sons in her home, she was down but not out. She made a full recovery and lived for many years afterwards. She survived to a good old age and delighted in telling people about the firefight in which she held off a troop of government soldiers. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for today. So we'll continue next Sunday, and I hope you enjoyed today's read. I love doing this. I love reading these books. You know, we got this one and two more set up behind it. So let me get forward here. I don't want to, like, quite get in your face. But I want to thank you all for coming, and I really appreciate it. And I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific for Missy Sterling and her story of the unknown creepy monster. So see you tomorrow. Have a good evening.